you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, February 11th, 2022. This is episode number 214. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us in over 25,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe and support our show and leave us a review. Today, we're talking about tripping in Utah, the industry's disconnect between stock prices and performance, hempcrete and the Olympics, the Board 8 Ape Yacht Club, HDL and Dana Point, a high THC harvest in Portugal, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hand if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis, a veteran in the cannabis industry and always ready to use her experience to guide others. The show wouldn't be what it is today without her expert leadership. What have you got for us today, Nicole? Well, happy fuck it Friday, everybody. Um, I'm coming to you today with some Yahoo Finance article. Uh, Now, I must give a full disclaimer. One, we don't give any financial advice, so this is all literally just out of a headline. Two, um, I have zero ability to give anybody financial advice because I can barely balance my own bank account. And every time I make a couple bucks, I act like I'm hood rich and buy a car I can't afford. So let me go ahead and give that disclaimer when I start in the conversation of cannabis industry has a big disconnect between stock prices and performance, according to strategists. And now I have to agree with this. In real life, I've been trying to understand what the fuck the stock market actually was for most of my adult life. And it wasn't until I got into cannabis that I really started having to grasp certain things. And one thing that I've really struggled with, I feel like if anybody's ever seen the movie The Big Short and the guy that was literally losing his mind trying to figure out how are these bonds not collapsing when nobody's paying their mortgages, I feel very similar about the cannabis industry and our stock prices. However, I digress and I will read this article. Uh, There's actually a cannabis or a a stock expert that they interviewed, Dan Ahrens. He's a portfolio manager and advisor shares of uh, pure cannabis EFTs and he sits down with Yahoo Finance to talk about the legal market. Now there's a few 
few things that I just want to make sure um, that I mentioned. First of all, uh, Dan Aaron says, well, I can't say that I've never seen an industry or a sector with such a big disconnect between company performance with revenue growth and other fundamental metrics versus their stock price. So there's a big misunderstanding between cannabis on the Canadian side of the border and the U.S. side of the border. These Canadian companies that are a lot of excitement with the legalized, uh, which legalized in Canada beginning in 2019, these companies get to list on NASDAQ or even the New York Stock Exchange. And even their big names that people are familiar with, like Canopy or Tilray. But sales are declining in Canada. It's not that big of a market compared to the United States. In the United States, we have these multi-state operators that are uh, that the Fed's fix likely is likely to that they promise to fix it. These companies can't list on the major exchanges either. They list on the secondary exchanges in Canada and trade OTC in the U.S. They can't get access to federal banking. They have limited institutional investment and they have a big uphill battle banking-wise and investment-wise. But fundamentally, these companies are multi-billion-dollar companies with fantastic revenue growth, and they're held back by these disadvantages as they're waiting to get fixed federally. Now, I think it's very interesting the way that the Canadian stock market actually exists in regards to the futures, but uh, I'll digress on that as well. According to um, Mr. Ahrens, uh, that they have limited institutional investment and they have a big uphill battle banking-wise. Um, he says that he's glad that um, he said the term vertically integrated because that's really the way things work in can the Canadian space. We're talking about companies that grow their product, package their product, and in many cases, sell the product to their own dispensaries. Now, there's been a lot of advancement and a lot of great deals in the wholesaling and the partnerships that people have been selling across products, but that's what we where we get vertically integrated on a state-by-state -state basis. Even with a lot of federal reforms that have been proposed, they've talked about the ability for states' rights and individual states that want to approve whether medical or adult use. And I just have to say one thing about that. Deschedule or motherfucking bust, y'all. And in the midterm elections, of course, coming from the 2022, are anticipated to uh, really uh, kind of a, a rebalance of the extremity shift, at least the framework in Washington, D.C., for there where you can see some type of reform for the cannabis space is hopeful. Um, it's been a critical year for a lot of the changes, and realistically, this is something that we're out of a very big crossroads in time right now. At what point will the cannabis industry and the stock market actually balance out? That is up to the world and Miss Cleo, and you know, let's see how that actually shakes out. There's no one saying what's going to happen, but at some point, the tables are going to have to turn, and there actually is going to have to be a balancing in these numbers. And I'm Nicole West, reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Yeah, there's a huge disconnect between stock prices and uh, actual performance. Curaleaf is losing money by the uh, hand over fist so that they can undercut the rest of the market. But the I rest of the- $79 million last year. I know, it's ridiculous. But, you know, they're holding on to the turf so that they can uh, uh, cut everybody else out. The re All the rest of the stock market is also pretty much gambling. Most of the transactions are made- uh, by computer programs, which are trying to get the uh, the fractional difference in the prices. Do you remember when they used to say uh, cannabis businesses needed a 12-month runway? <laughs> I don't know. I've never said that ever in my life. Uh, I think anybody that would have said that was a terrible business advisor. So if you, any of those people are listening, you suck. We hate you Well, all. How, how long hey, is the runway now? 
I mean, the, the, the runway has always been in a realistic, any kind of business, three years. Anybody who gives any sort of business advisement will always say that you need to be able to operate and figure out how to maintain for the first three years because the first three years are going to be your make or break years. Um, but yeah, no, one year has literally never been enough money for anything ever in the history of ever. And that was not a good advice of anyone because at the end of the day for you to figure out, especially in a cultivation situation, the stabilization of your building, absolutely not possible for that to even be figured out, sorted and made money with in a year to even be close to profitability. Well, if there's no other comments, we'll keep moving. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Canavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? So mine today, um, over 40% of drivers with past year alcohol and cannabis use report DUIs. According to a new study published uh, in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, researchers at Columbia University found two in five drivers who report using alcohol and cannabis in the past year drove under the influence of alcohol, cannabis, or both. Although earlier published research suggested uh, simultaneous alcohol and cannabis use increases driving impairment, until now, no study with national coverage has tested the relationships between smoking, drinking, and driving all at once, or as some choose to call it, riding dirty. Priscilla Dib Gun Calves from the Colombian Malman School Department of Epidemiology says... This study could contribute to better understanding the impact of adolescents and adults. The study's author goes on to say, alcohol and cannabis are two of the most common substances involved in impaired driving and motor vehicle crashes in the U.S. The study covered about 35,000 drivers ages 16 years and older and reported any past year alcohol and cannabis use from 2016 to 2019. Final results were broken down between Uh, Those driving under the influence of alcohol only, cannabis only, alcohol and cannabis, or as some know in certain circles, the crossfade. Of the 42% of drivers surveyed, DUIs within the same year at the the rates of 8% reported alcohol DUIs, 20% uh, reported cannabis DUIs, and 14% reported both. Simultaneous use was uh, shown nearly three times higher odds of getting a DUI than just driving under the influence of cannabis. 57% of the participants were white male. Um, 67% had a family income of 40,000 or less. Uh, 63% uh, were living in a state with medical cannabis laws. And um, there's some really interesting information in the study, but unless you're a big data nerd like myself, you don't really need to see something like this to tell you the obvious. The more substances you're under the influence of at once while driving, the more likely likely you are to get popped. So maybe use this as a cautionary tale to all those house-hopping Super Bowl partiers this weekend in L.A. where there's as much cannabis around as booze. Maybe call an Uber instead of uh, getting behind the wheel after a little Sunday mezcalota uh, fun with Eric Hislereta. Uh, we'll we all be safer because of that. This is Rico Lamite, the dopest dad choosing to ride clean this weekend in these LA streets. Go Rams. Back to you, Susan and Nicole. Yeah, tip your Uber driver and uh, definitely 
don't be on the road if you're crossfading, which Rico mentioned. I didn't have time to do this story yesterday, but if you're in Baltimore, um, uh, go to the Growth Op website. There's an article, Feel Like Getting High and Drunk at John Hopkins Dime. Baltimore residents can sign up for a new weed and booze study. So they want to see, you know, how what what the deal is with crossfading. And you can get up to $3,400 to crossfade. $3,400 to crossfade? Yeah. That's fucking yeah. To, cross, to crossfade Dude, and drive? Dude, that's worth a plane ticket. Like, let's roll. Let's take the cannabis out. Like, fucking field trip, y'all. Are they going to pay you to crossfade and drive, too? No, I don't want to drive, bro. I want to be I'm down to party. I'm fucking down to party. Let's roll. If you survive, we will pay you. I mean, how much How much alcohol, though? Because I'm a lightweight on the booze. So I just I don't want to get too drunk. I, just, I get real high, though. Is there good weed in Baltimore? I don't know. That's a good question. If, if there is if you get it from Amsterdam. Oh shit! I I think it's seven. You have to do it seven weeks in a row or something like That's that. That's a long. So time. You'd have to, yeah. All right, the hotel room. I don't know if I'd be able to afford it. I, I'm back out. I tapped back out. If anyone's in Baltimore, uh, hit us up. You can crash at my house. It's only about forty. There we away. go. <laughs> yeah. Party at Gretchen's. I'm gonna show up crossfaded every day. <laughs> oh, all right. Hell yeah. All right. Well, if nobody's got any more fun comments on that one, thank you so much for the headline, Rico. Um, and up next, we have Liz Rogan. Liz is a biodynamic biologist, botanist, and a cannabis health liaison. And our pinup girl. What do you have for us today, Liz? Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Nicole. Happy Friday, and thanks for tuning in. My story comes from Normal in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, and the headline reads, Pennsylvania patients respond to recall of medical cannabis products, say such incidents strengthen arguments to permit home cultivation. This is an ongoing story I've been following in Pennsylvania about uh, recalls here, and this is a little bit of a deeper dive into the actual perspective on the ground from the patients. So Pennsylvania patients are upset and confused, with good reason. Just a week ago today, on Friday, February 4th, the Pennsylvania Department of Health Medical Marijuana Program issued the first large product recall in the program's history. Citing FDA regulations on additives for inhalations, despite the lack of federal regulations on cannabis due to its Schedule I status, the products on in the recall list have been pulled from the shelf. But removing the products from the dispensaries has impacted every permit holder and a majority of patients. Jeff Reedy, a registered patient and the executive director of Lehigh Valley Normal noted the consensus, uh, sorry, the concerns regarding lack of FDA approval for vaping additives have been an ongoing issue since 2016, prior to the rollout of the state's medical cannabis program. He says, every registered patient puts our trust into the integrity of Pennsylvania's licensed laboratories, dispensaries, and the growers' processors. We expect that our products will be absolutely safe, but with this unexpected recall, patients across Pennsylvania have been left with real doubts, questioning the safety standards currently practiced across the cannabis industry. He says there was no instruction or guidance offered about refunds or returns, and there's been no communication on alternative products. Many patients are now desperate. Where can they turn? want to note that the recalled products are some of the most expensive on dispensary shelves currently uh, concentrates cost between $50 to $100 a gram. Regulations do outline a policy for patients to return unopened products that are recalled for a full refund. It does remain unclear if there'll be returns or refunds for opened 
for open containers. The continued lack of transparency is eroding trust in the efficacy and professionalism of the program, its players, and even the regulators. These patients in normal say quickly passing SB 1024, which is a medical cannabis home cultivation bill, ensures an additional avenue for safe access, as Pennsylvania patients do not currently have access to any home grow. As a patient advocate, I personally support product safety recalls, but I do want to note that this, these are um, products that are used in vape cartridges all across the United States right now. These are mainly MSOs in Pennsylvania that have this recall. So I'm curious if we will see this coming across in other states and how this may impact other patients. So this is Liz Rogan uh, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. You got to be able to grow your own medicine. That's just a line in the sand. Real talk. And looking, How and many looking, people that eat tomatoes grow their own tomatoes? Let's be real. But here. they can. They can grow them. I grow them. I have, I'm have. i all in favor of home grow, Susan. I'm 100% in favor of home grow. But I'm just saying on the reality of it, how many people that eat tomatoes grow their own yeah, tomatoes? It's a, lot of work. it's a lot of fucking work. So, like, most people will go to the grocery store and buy it. Most people, Jason, your point is valid. Like, most people won't grow their own but they always should have the option and just like they should always have the option to grow their own food they should have the option to grow their own medicine especially if it's a plant yes and jason as as a retailer i'm here to tell you that if people grow a cannabis plant at least one time in their life they're going it's a good thing for retailers because they're going to love cannabis even more and also they're going to realize it's not as easy as they thought one thing i think is this shows how unclear it is because, I mean, these patients are asking to grow cannabis. They obviously want an alternative, but if there's someone who's using a vape cartridge with a concentrate that's got a very high THC percentage, it really shows the disconnect also with, um, with that. Well, and with growing your own, you can get more specific, um, more specific products that you want to consume. The the stuff on the shelves might not be um, to your liking or to your needs, especially in a newer state. Oh, Ollie Muffins, you're up from the audience. Ollie, I haven't heard from you in forever. What do you have for us on this? Give us some insight, buddy. Hi, guys. I... Oh, Ollie, you sound like a robot. I have to mute you. You're not making. I'm sorry. Thank you, Jason keeping me out of trouble. Dr. Felicia, um, I don't know where we are on time, but... You know, home grow is important because it allows you to develop a relationship with the plant. You don't usually develop a relationship with your Lipitor or your Prozac. So home grow is very important. Thank you. Yes. Or your... One thing I want to note for you all is if you look at the list of the recalled uh, things like oils, some of them are actual just normal essential oils like bergamot and lavender. And that is something that people use for aromatherapy all the time. So it's kind of interesting. This is definitely conflicting because they're saying it's not okay for inhalable with the FDA. But what do they call inhalable? Like how hot is this inhalable thing? So I think there's a lot of, uh, you know discrepancies here and hopefully we'll see this cleared up and not see any of this happen in other states with cost to patients and operators. 
if well, when we also talk about the essential oils, making sure that we are considerate that a lot of those uh, herbs that are not as um, re- heavily regulated are now getting mixed in, those oils getting mixed into products. And so we're going to see a lot of things testing hot in the cannabis world as these, you know, other herbs and, and oils come into the market and become like a, a hybrid of these products. Deschedule or bust. I think we're good on time on that. Uh, Rico, you want to introduce Chase? I do. He's the industry's longest continuously running retailer with a record two PhDs with a Z in bro science. If you're in a green street getting deals done, you can probably find him in a mint coat on a private jet somewhere high above the clouds, staying hydrated by sipping on desalinated liberal tears. Up next is the man also known as Kaiser Brose, Jason Beck. What you got for us today, my man? Oh, yeah. Good morning, Rico. Hope everyone's having a fantastic Friday today. Today, my story comes out of Portugal. That's right, Europe, where the Flower, F-L-O-W-R, corporation announces its first successful high THC medical cannabis harvest in Portugal and provides an operational update at its European operations. And here's just some some quick notes that I took over the article. Um, Basically, Flower's wholly owned subsidiary, Hologen, fully operational um, in the EU and is a GMP certified indoor facility. Six grow rooms have been put into operation with Flower's proprietary genetics. And mind you, all these genetics start with BC, which uh, stands for, you know, boof. Uh, Tom Flo, co-founder and Flower and chief operating officer, has relocated to oversee operations in Portugal. And first harvest of BC um, that is called BC Black Cherry Strain completed, and its process is testing at more than 25% THC content. Second harvest of BC Stranana commenced January 31st in 2022 with its uh, process testing at more than 27% THC. And Hologen expects to harvest approximately 300 kilograms of medical cannabis in the first quarter of 2022 and over 2,000 kilograms of premium cannabis flower per year from its Sintra facility. Halogen has also launched the EU GMP co-manufacturing services business, providing third-party cultivators with GMP tolling services, which has seen a huge demand for domestic cultivators. And the company expends significant revenue from co-manufacturing services in 2022. And the last topic point on this uh, on this spew is Halogen launches a lab service business now available for third-party clients as a service offering to the domestic market and provides an additional source of revenue. Now, this just this article to me is just full of everything of what not to do. First of all, you don't call weed BC in the front of the title, okay? Because everyone knows that's just fucking boof already. Then on top of it, you don't fucking talk about that you also offer lab services because then that just gives the impression that you're falsifying these numbers already, just like every other lab already falsifies numbers. And to me, it's going to sound super boofy, but here we go. I hope everyone's ready for the crown jewel of this article. They also have a deal in place to grow cookies genetics as soon as adult use kicks in in Portugal. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. (laughs) Oh, my God. And that's how the cookie crumbles. (laughs) Oh, man. So, Jason, (laughs) Jason, haven't you recently been in Portugal? 
I have, and uh, it's a fascinating market. They're actually using uh, their pharmacies. So if you've ever been to Europe and you've seen those green signs that look like they're cannabis stores, but they're pharmacies, those are the point parts for, or point places for all of the distribution uh, through, throughout Portugal. And um, I have talked to a couple of people out there that do have facilities out there that are just starting to get online and whatnot, and they all are anticipating adult use coming in very soon. Jason, is this, uh, do you consider this booth? What category is this? Because, I mean, it has some decent THC, but to your standards, I'm curious. Uh, is this I, I haven't, I haven't, well, does it, though, Liz? I haven't smoked does it? weed, but I can tell you that just by the name calling it BC anything tells me already that it's booth. Well, you even used to call it Beasters back in the day when you couldn't get anything but BC or South, like Mexican, or like the like very rare that you could get local, you know, indoor or Indo. We still called it Beasters back then. Like it's always been like the the less the lesser of all of the choices. We would rather literally get the cannabis from anywhere else. No, you're a hundred percent right on that, Nicole. And uh, these these genetics these genetics actually did come from Canada, which is why they're calling them a BC. That's hey. Uh, Jason, um, Rico just said in the back channel, Portugal, the man or the man in Portugal. Um, Portugal, the man came to my Coachella party and they love weed. They are, are they, do you know, does anyone know, are they working on a celebrity brand? They're not relevant to cannabis culture. Oh, okay. Isn't <laughs> okay. But uh, no, <laughs> isn't everybody. Yes. It's such, it does, is nanogram not, Jason's or Rico's part I mean, of you the do, culture. Still you do smoke outdoor food. Yeah. <laughs> He's still mad about talking terps yesterday. Sorry, Rico. Sorry. And just for the record, talking terps is part of the cannabis community and part of the culture. Fight me. For the record. From my perspective, I'm kind of excited that we'll see cannabis appellations of origin in Portugal, which is a signatory to the International Appellations Treaty. So I think... We're going to see uh, official world appellations pretty soon coming out of I Portugal. I really hope that California gets a handle on doing this, and I hope we deschedule our bus so that we can become the France of the cannabis world. Like, and be France pretty much controls wine Appalachia in a big way, and I think that we should. Um, California has has that uh, standard and has been doing it long enough, and we definitely need to deschedule our bus so California can take that international world on. Um, and I am uh, going to jump over next to Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen is the founder of Panoptic Strategies and a Washington Insider. What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Uh, good afternoon, Nicole. Today, my headline is coming from Marijuana Moment. Um, this is a follow-up to a story I, I believe we did earlier this week or what was last week. Um, the headline is Federally Owned Utility Company Walks Back Threat to Block Electricity for Marijuana Businesses. A federally owned utility company that recently stirred controversy after signaling that it might refuse to provide wholesale electrical services to state legal marijuana businesses clarified yesterday that it won't be taking such action. At the same time, it is seeking federal guidance on the matter. Advocates, congressional lawmakers, and a key Mississippi regulator condemned the Tennessee Valley Authority for suggesting that it might turn off the lights on cannabis facilities operating lawfully under state policy. The prior statement from TVA, which cited federal obligations to uphold prohibition, came days after Mississippi's governor signed into law a bill to legalize medical cannabis in the state. TVA is a main supplier of electricity to the Mississippi's northern region. 
But now TVA said in a clarifying statement yesterday that it has, quote, an obligation to serve our customers with safe, reliable, low-cost energy, and we will continue to do so. There will be no interruption in service because of this newly signed law. The broader issue is a complex one and represents a conflict between state and federal law. We are looking to the appropriate federal agencies for further clarification and have requested additional guidance. This statement comes on the same day that Mississippi Northern District Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley weighed in on the situation as Supertalk Mississippi Media first reported. He said, much confusion has ensued in the past week due to a statement sent out by the Tennessee Valley Authority intimidating, intimating that local electric utilities who buy power from the TVA would not be able to provide electricity to a licensed medical marijuana facility due to possible conflicts with federal law. TVA statement has already caused some medical marijuana facilities to look at other areas of the state and therefore possibly denying northern Mississippians the benefit of the newly passed medical marijuana program. The news of TVA's original statement on the issue was first picked up locally by the Daily Journal before being spotlighted by national outlets like the Associated Press and Marijuana Moment. Two congressional lawmakers, Representatives Earl Blumenauer and Steve Cohen, cited Marijuana Moment's reporting in a statement condemning the utility's position. Cohen told Marijuana Moment yesterday that he's glad TVA will service uh, lawful businesses and not place a never-before-presented obstacle to medical marijuana. Uh, He said, while I'm glad the TVA has promised to not interrupt its service for state legal cannabis businesses, there should not be any level of interference from the TVA or its employees to state legal cannabis businesses. Uh, Businesses and patients alike deserve clarity from the Biden administration and Congress alike. Uh, This came from a Representative Blumenauer. In an earlier letter to TVA Chairman uh, William Kilbride that was sent on Wednesday, the two lawmakers said they felt, quote, deep concern over the utilities statement, which details plans to have the agency deputize its employees to attempt to enforce outdated and scientifically baseless federal cannabis policies against state legal businesses. Presley, the Mississippi official, said in his statement that it is a long-held principle in state law that electric utilities have an obligation to serve customers without discrimination. A licensed medical marijuana facility under Mississippi is no different. He said, it is my position that any licensed medical marijuana facility should be served with electricity upon application and request. Once power is delivered by the TVA to a local utility, TVA's oversight ends and controlled state law and public service commission statutes ensure that these facilities should be served with electricity like any other licensed business. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see that the TVA has taken its head out of its ass. Um, I don't know where they came up with the idea in the first place that they should try and deny uh, lawful businesses electricity. Uh, but I think this also does demonstrate that people standing up, saying what they need and getting to their reps saying this is bullshit actually works. This is Gretchen for State of Kansas News Hour. Yeah, Mississippi, goddamn. You say that again. I'm glad they're walking this back because I think this was ludicrous, as we all think, I think. And um, this is great news. They probably got the idea from the governor who's been trying to trash the uh, in, uh, cannabis regs there since they were approved by the voters. They got the idea from Christopher Smith on the State of Cannabis News Hour last week. It was Wednesday, wasn't it? It was a couple oh, days was ago. that this week? Yeah, that was it this was this week. Okay. <laughs> it's a long week. Yeah. It's been yeah. a long week. You're right. It has. State, state of the cannabis rules, 
I definitely think that there's, um, you know, the conversation to be had in regards to the control in general of energy and the power companies. Um, California had a big problem with it at one point. You know, we were basically under a monopoly of power. And there's definitely a lot of places in still in the United States that have that. And companies, you know, power companies have this uh, great control. And so we definitely have to really, you know, deschedule or bust on power too sometimes, guys. I think we need to. I'll go ahead. My question I would ask, and this is to the attorneys, is if this could serve as an example for down the road. I mean, this all came into question because the TVA, um, you know, has some federal designation. And so could this be a way to start overturning things federally kind of behind closed doors if they have to actually answer these questions on whether or not cannabis uh, can fuck with this? Well, I think it reflects that that probably happened um, behind the scenes in this instance with the TVA. They probably checked with the Biden administration that said, hey, back off. We don't want to, uh, you know, cost waves right before the midterms on cannabis, which is uh, universally supported. I just have to say that in regards with this, I think it's time that we call in Tim, the Toolman Taylor to this, because we're definitely going to need more power, more power. You want to talk about your infrastructure bill next time? The infrastructure it. bill is trash. <laughs> All right. Well, we've reached the half hour point, and so we're going to relight the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. I really hope red state CRT educational restrictions don't screen out our next correspondent of uh, future history books because she is the first black female cannabis sommelier. She's also the CMO at Fruit Slabs, a deliciously infused vegan and kosher edible treat. Up next, it's Maggie Wilson. What you got for us today, Maggie? Thanks for that intro, Rico. Today, I've got a story coming from The Verge, written by Mia Sato. It says, Bored Ape Yacht Club members want to build an empire, starting with weed. What do you do with the IP rights to your very expensive cartoon primate? Put him on pa- cannabis packaging. So, when Richard Lee first brought his business proposal to Backpack Boys, he could sense skepticism from the California-based cannabis company. Quote, you're going to put an ape on this bag and you're going to make a new flavor, but like, who's going to buy it, is kind of what they were thinking, Lee says. The ape in question is the Board Ape Yacht Club number 768, a wide-eyed primate with white fur, blue hat, and a silver hoop earring. Lee purchased the ape, uh, which he's named Crypto Painter, in, in May of 2021 for about $3,000 US today. And he wanted to license Crypto Painter out, and Backpack Boys was his first stop. The first product was an ice blue matrix-style cannabis flower package with Lee's ape emblazoned on the front of the package with the new strain named Crypto Gelato. At this point, Backpack Boys had been watching the NFT space only from a distance. They mostly agreed to do it because they were introduced to Lee by a close friend. 
So first, the product was a bestseller at the grand opening uh, in December, and then it did really good at Rolling Loud. Uh, Lee seems to be one step closer to his goal with Backpack Boys. It continually keeps selling out, and they had to make a post on Instagram saying that uh, asking people not to acquire the crypto gelato illegally. Uh, sending the ape out for its first test run in a grand vision, thinking that it was going to be a big star. Uh, the article goes on to say that uh, he secured another cannabis license, licensing agreement with a larger weed company to be announced soon. I'm sure we can guess what that is. Um, <laughs> it says owning a board ape yacht club uh, NFT naturally comes with perks uh, of, all, of all these different things, but Originally, I think the meat and potatoes of the article really gets down to it says the yacht club members, uh, the yacht club members pursuing cannabis deals describe an array of perspectives with the larger BAYC ecosystem. Some people just want to collect their want to collect their apes, meet other enthusiasts, and watch the space grow. But there are others, often self-described as quote entrepreneurs or business-minded people, who see the apes as a launching pad for something bigger than the yacht club. For bigger than the yacht club. The article continues to go on to say that this man basically says that he see you see Mickey Mouse and Alvin the Chipmunks and these characters have come a long way. He wants this crypto monkey to essentially be like that. The comparison to Disney has been made before, but it hasn't proved itself well yet. Aside from a few apes backed by celebrities, most ventures haven't broken to mainstream consciousness. Uh, ask your mom to name a board ape off the top of her head, seriously. Ask your mom to name a relevant Disney character. Once I found out that we were able to license it, I naturally thought right away, I'm going to try to build the next Disney. Not just an item or product, but like a culture and a lifestyle. Um, I hope that this really does come to fruition because these are big aspirations if you want to be like Disney. Um, <laughs> quote from uh, one of the BAC licensing members, I had no understanding of the IP, he says. It wasn't until he started engaging with other ape owners that he saw a statement about licensing the board ape to other places. Joey's company, um, Money Trees Cannabis, will soon have board ape products on its shelf. For now, Joey's only using his apes in-house, but he has plans to approach other companies as well. In the grand scheme of things, it's definitely more valuable as an IP asset than as an NFT, Joey says. So I find that this is very interesting. I wish Brandon was in here today, but he is on a plane on his way back to Long Beach. Uh, it does say, unfortunately, because of a lot of these folks don't understand the stuff, companies will throw stuff out there and people are just going to get excited because there's money attached to it. Uh, that seems like what, me, what might be happening when you're just making up new strains because of an NFT. So i definitely like to see, I would love everyone to actually read this article and give an opinion uh, on it at one point in time, because it's, it's really interesting. It, it's, it's very much uh, a new fun space to play in, but the, the Backwoods Boys are, the Backwoods Boys um, logo itself looks like the Rolls Royce logo. So we've got a little bit of infringing going on just with that. So it's this the, is Maggie it's the recording. For it's the backpack boys, right? Backpack boys. Oh yeah, backpack boys. Well, their not, logo not looks backwoods. Like, backwoods. No, yeah, backpack boys. Their logo looks like the Rolls Royce logo. So that's a little bit of infringement just to begin with. Well, Brandon just walked <laughs> in the room. So yay! Uh, if you want to come up on stage, Brandon, um, I was uh, my my. This is a very interesting article, and my first thought was, um, why are they so bored? I wish they weren't bored, but whatever. And then um, the the acronym uh, Board Ape Yacht Club B A Y C. I was trying to figure out how you would say that. Is it like Bay Boyk? Bay 
bake. I think uh, 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 Susan, Maggie, I, I think we all need to start thinking about our future and whether we'd rather have the industry overrun by suit wearing chads or crypto bros. You can only have one. Neither. 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 Fucking neither. It's going to be one of them. I just have one thing to say in regards to Maggie's and, and to Maggie's comment is that um, backpack boys, most of their consumers do consume it out of backwoods. <laughs> At Rolling Loud at festivals that they probably acquired it illegally. <laughs> right, right. Do, do, do they keep their backwoods in their backpacks? They keep them fresh and moist, Rico. Well, you need some backwoods right. well, with some time. boof like that. That's a horrible. Well, let's give, did that, did that festival that. have an event license, organizer license? No. You don't need to have a license How for the trap. They? This is the trap. Well, they're announcing that they were selling it there, that they sold exactly. out. Exactly, that's trapping, girl. <laughs> so we'll go ahead and jump uh, to our uh, next correspondent, Anna Mae Mead. Anna is who some call Captain Planet. She smoked herb on five continents, lighting a fatty at the South Pole after cleaning up radioactive waste and shipping it safely back to the U.S. for disposal. She has a black belt in Go Ryu and a, a word ninja. From the licensing apps to popular cannabis guides, currently reporting from Provincetown. Anna, what do you have for us today? Hey, thank you, Nicole, for that great introduction. I My news comes from Worcester Magazine. Uh, only people in Massachusetts can actually pronounce that city. Um, Cannabis Confidential, more sites for social consumption of marijuana on the horizon. Over five years after Mar Massachusetts legalized cannabis, the state licensed public spaces for consumption are finally on the horizon if you squint hard enough. The bill that fixes a regulatory oversight that would allow 12 municipalities to license social consumption application moved out of committee and onto the floor. These businesses would be allowed to sell a variety of cannabis products for patrons to consume on site. Unfortunately, the rules limit consumers to only vaporizing and consuming edibles. Currently, the only social consumption space in the Commonwealth is Summit Lounge in Worcester. Opened in February 2018, the lounge managed to get approval from the city by applying for a license to open a members-only smoking lounge, simply not mentioning what their patients would be smoking. The Worcester city manager went ballistic at the time, citing all sorts of um, reefer madness concerns, and four years later, the summit has been opening, operating with no notable incidences or issues. Despite incidents, inability to actually sell cannabis and hostility to the idea from municipalities, Summit Lounge is a success story. The writer would say it made, would life make easier if there were actually places where people would be able to consume cannabis with others besides the front porch and the backyard. License for social consumption businesses would be limited to economic empowerment applicant, social equity participants, micro-business owners, and cooperative for a period of at least two years. Not only is that a smart and decent thing to do, it should reap positive benefits for Worcester's cultural scene as well. These venues will be operated by local small business owners rather than massive corporations. Mike Brass, a city resident uh, and educator, has founded the Massachusetts Social Consumption Advancement Coalition, which is advocating the government to pass regulations to 
provide social consumption spaces. He noted that the businesses have the opportunity to become an important avenue for cannabis micro-businesses and craft cultivators to introduce their products to the public in a way that allows for direct and immediate feedback. However, they need to incorporate actual smoking in the establishments. Once social consumption establishments are fully allowed to open, the opportunities are endless. Music venues, art galleries, arcades, candle pin bowling alleys. Assuming the city embraces social consumption establishments as much as it has with other types of cannabis business and joins the state pilot program, they will have the chance to be added to the list of attractions that bring visitors from near and far, just like the city's multiple breweries. Just as important, they'll also give people whose housing situations don't allow for consumption a safe and legal place to consume. Until then, you just have to keep sneaking those hits off your vape pen while you're out and about. Um, this reflects some of the complexities. Yes, the voters approved social consumption five years ago, and then all the regulations and laws had to be addressed and fixed to allow this. And even so, throughout the process, they pushed back so that smoking isn't even on the agenda. I'd love to hear my uh, fellow correspondents' take on Massachusetts' lame move forward. This is Anna reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I just want to say um, a big shout out to Summit Lounge and the people out there. Uh, when I was out on the East Coast uh, late, 2021, I got to meet one another one of our correspondents, Victoria Lippman, out there in Worcester, and um, we had a great time. Very, very hospitable and uh, really, really nice place. Big shout out to, to Worcester and uh, getting their uh, gray area on. Shout out to Loopholes. Yeah, Worcester and Summit Lounge has been holding it down. They moved the Cannabis Control Commission out of Boston to Worcester because it was a very... Um, this city was falling apart and it needed some help, so it embraced cannabis in a big way. I was really surprised at how many people just park on the sidewalk there. What the fuck is up with that? I can't even with mass hole drivers. Mass holes are great holes. All right. So our next correspondent does it all. Not only is he founder of a boutique transactional cannabis law firm, legal publisher, author, Ganjier, but also a practitioner of high-style Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So if you get caught fucking up the rotation, don't be surprised if he breaks the wrist and walks away. Omar Figueroa, what you got for us this morning, my man? Thank you, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My story is from the Dana Point Times by Brianna Greenberg, and the headline is Anticipating Potential Cannabis Initiative Council votes to examine ways of maintaining local control. The city of Dana Point, California, has decided to investigate opportunities and methods to maintain local control and tax measures when it comes to regulating cannabis stores should a ballot initiative invite the cannabis industry to town. During a February 1st meeting, the city council voted to examine controls, mitigations, and regulations on storefronts, including a tax measure ordinance. Currently, the city bans the operation of medical or recreational marijuana dispensaries. As more and more California cities face citizen ballot initiatives to remove bans in place and allow for the legal operation of cannabis retail, the city is looking at how to maintain local control in the event such a measure passes in Dana Point. El Monte, Huntington Beach, Jerupa Valley, Lake Forest, 
Long Beach, and South El Monte have all been served by citizen initiatives, according to a presentation from HDL Companies, a consulting firm that works with local governments on economic development, tax revenues, and cannabis compliance, and also creating dysfunctional cannabis policies. Um, quote, with this as the backdrop, and to be prepared should it be become an allowable activity in town, we embarked on identifying practices for regulation and oversight with a particular eye on preserving public safety, said the city manager. The city contracted with a research group uh, to conduct a survey of Dana Point's likely voters. Of the surveyed population, more than two-thirds were not aware that it's currently illegal to operate a dispensary or cannabis business in Dana Point. 52% of those surveyed were in support of the city establishing regulations to allow for medical and recreational businesses to operate in Dana Point, whereas 42% were opposed. The percentage of those in support of regulations grew to 61% when the surveyor informed participants that cannabis businesses would bring in taxes and fees for city services. The reality is it's coming. It's here in delivery already. Councilmember Jamie Frederico said, what we're losing are the tax dollars. So all of those delivery trucks that you see driving around town, if you were to look at, I guess, weed maps or whatever it is, it's coming here and sales tax dollars are going to Santa Ana. Dave McPherson, Compliance Director at HDL, explained that voter initiatives take away a lot of local control and regulations that those polled had favored in the survey. The ballot measures may not require the same restrictions that the city would want to enact, such as background checks and zoning buffers. These initiatives do not meet those thresholds. They are not good policy for policymakers or communities, McPherson said. Well, there's no ballot measure proposed in Dana Point. There are several groups already working on an initiative. A decade from now, council member Jamie Frederico predicted, quote, retail cannabis will probably be in every one of these towns in South Orange County, Orange County, and in the state of California, whether it's by some sort of action in Sacramento or a ballot measure done by the industry statewide or by lots of individual citywide ballot measures. We're not going backwards. Federico also said that younger people tend to be more in favor of cannabis than older people, adding that each year younger people make up a larger and larger percentage of the vote. Quote, what we're doing is ignoring the future and in the meantime missing out on all the tax dollars that go with that, Federico said. And quite frankly, I think we can bury our heads in the sand and do nothing or we can engage this issue like we are doing rationally and try to look at if this happens in our town, and when, how we put all those things in place to make, mitigate the issues that are concerns for our residents. From my perspective, HDL needs to get out of giving cities advice on cannabis regulation and taxation. The headline is Anticipating Potential Cannabis Initiative Council Votes to Examine Ways of Maintaining Local Control. This is Omar Figueroa, lawyer, author, and Ganjie instructor, reporting for, from Sebastopol in Sonoma County for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you uh, for doing this story, Omar. Um, I, I just wanted to point out that council member Villar said, quote, I have a responsibility as a coach and a mentor to understand that this drug is a gateway. There's no doubt about it. It leads to other things. And when we normalize this in our community, it starts to seep into areas that we don't want to be. End quote. Uh, we've got Elliot Lewis up from the audience. I'd love to hear what you've got to say on Omar's uh, headline, Elliot. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's just hilariously amusing that uh, 
HDL is going to, you know, save the day. We've done tons of applications. We've got everywhere, anywhere from an 81-ish percent, I think, is our low to a 99.8 percent is our high. And it's basically the same application every time. So the idea that there's some objective standard and now their latest, I guess, pitch is, you know, initiatives that we <laughs> we have been part of writing, which are way better policy than uh, anything HDL has put in. I admit we get a few advantages. We know what the map is. Uh, we put in good labor standards because we believe in it, but it also helps us. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the entire policy is so much better than anything uh, HDL could come up with. And now they're using it as a weapon to get into these cities. And I still haven't figured out what their criteria is. You know, my position is that their job is just to take the heat uh, for, you know, the cronyism that exists in licensing. And I don't even know today what merit-based even means. I will say this. I enjoyed having McPherson in a deposition, and we have uh, sued HDL on multiple occasions, and uh, I was not impressed uh, with him as a witness. But uh, nonetheless, I find a huge irony in, in this story about 10 ways uh, from Sunday. Cannabis is a gateway off of pharmaceuticals. It's a gateway to plant medicine. Bars. Bars? What? Like like spitting bars, like that was like a good verse. Oh. Hashtag bars, Susan. Got it. Okay. Uh, okay. I definitely, I've been, I've been uh, reviewed by HDL numerous times in um, multiple states now at this point. And the original founding members, most of them are Colorado regulators, um, turned consultants into the industry after a few years of regulating the introduction and infancy of uh, the first fully regulated market in the state in the United States. Um, and I've seen some of the reviews of. Just just like Elliot said, the exact same fucking thing, get like high score and then sometimes get a low score. And I'm just like, I don't understand how you're viewing or reviewing this. And, you know, real life, I almost feel like sometimes like a good example was Pat Pasadena. When I feel like at a certain point, some of those winners were just like a fucking dart that was thrown at the wall so that they could balance out those other MSOs that they wanted to prop at the beginning. I can't wait till somebody just like writes an expose. (laughs) It's going to be. Yeah, I don't think HDL is looked upon fondly all over California. No. All right. Well, now now they're scaremongering, trying to drum up business. I I think they got to get out of cannabis. I agree with Omar. They, but they're making so much money and the cities are just terrified and they, they just want to have a quote unquote expert in the room and, and maybe somebody to blame, uh, but they're not going anywhere. One thing, though, they are at least a, in a, a more uh, open reality that they're aligning with the government. I've seen other uh, government officials, uh, you know, one of the main forensic investigators on the finance under the full grand jury investigation that I went through turned his entire business into um, I know how to audit things. I was the main investigator on the Sweet Leaf case and became a cannabis consultant for cannabis businesses. So, you know, at least it's not that way. Um, at least they are aligning with the government. And, you know, they're just one hair away from being them the the you know the ops themselves and we all have to really know that and understand that in the process. I wonder what the tax rate's going to end up being if if HDL is uh, consulting for Dana Point. Just because you call yourself an expert doesn't mean you're really an expert. Oh man, absolutely. <laughs> all right, well let's go ahead and hop to our next correspondent. Uh, thank you so much for that headline, Omar and Elliot. Thank you for your comments on that. We really appreciate it. Um, and up next we have Christopher Smith. Christopher Smith is the communication strategist and the publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Our very own Clark Kent, or maybe he's Ron Burgundy. 
news team, assemble. What do you have for us today? <laughs> Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Rico. Are you ready to pack a Super Bowl for the Super Bowl? <laughs> Thank you. I'm the place where dad jokes go to die. That was me giving myself a high five. High five. Get it? High five. Okay. My main story today is about another little sporting event, the Winter Olympics. They got a little thing going on there called the bobsled, which reminds me there are actually two stories involving the bobsled and cannabis today. But remember, when bobsledding, please use cannabis responsibly. First of all, you all know that our superstar friend Roz McCarthy has launched her own brand called Black Buddha Cannabis, right? Well, props to Roz, and the new announcement is that the brand is launching in four states, California, Nevada, Michigan, and Ohio. But the big news for me is that she's adding a new chief strategy officer by the name of Malik Yoba. So you're thinking, Malik Yoba, that sounds familiar. Is he a cannabis guy? Well, yes, he is, but he's also a huge Hollywood star with Bob Sled in his backstory. Yoba played Yule Brenner in the hit movie Cool Runnings about the Jamaican bobsled team. So that is bobsled cannabis story number one. And bobsled cannabis number two comes from Hemp Industry Daily. The headline is 2022 Winter Olympics feature Canadian hemp fibers in huge bobsled tracks. So it's not hempcrete exactly, but hemp fiber. So Canadian hemp is speeding into the world stage on the 2022 Olympics in Beijing. Calgary, Alberta-based processor Canadian Greenfield Technologies sent more than 60,000 pounds of its Enforce fiber for use in competition luge and bobsled tracks. The fibers were used in place of plastic fibers as a concrete strengthener. The company sells hemp fibers for outdoor construction projects that use sprayed concrete, which is commonly known as shotcrete, such as outdoor pools and skate parks. The fibers strengthen the concrete. So the big deal here is that hemp fiber is getting a really special place in a high-stress environment where failure is absolutely not an option. Could you imagine if the Olympic bobsled track fell apart? So picture this. If a skateboard park is Steve Urkel, a bobsled track is Arnold Schwarzenegger. The bobsled track is about a mile of solid ice and comprises 16 curves. And that's where the hemp is going to be used because that's where the major forces are placed. And those are all built up and structurally, okay? The curves have to contain the force of bobsleds with four big athletes inside. It's about 1,400 pounds fully loaded with the athletes on board. And those bobsleds reach a speed of 90 miles an hour and they pull five G's, five times normal gravity, which is more force than astronauts feel when their rockets take off. So while you're at home packing your comfy little bowl on your comfy little couch, that hemp is doing real work. So in conclusion, for the first time, hemp is going to be part of the mix in a major high-stress construction project with the eyes of the world on it, and it's replacing plastic, which the international team of engineering and construction experts deemed inferior to hemp. And that's a gold medal performance in my book. Go Rams! Christopher, there was another uh, uh, bobsled story that I think you missed, and it was uh, the U.S. bobsled sled team named their sled Biden because they said America's never been on a downhill slope faster ever in life. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, really? God, your Jesus. memory is so short. I think, I think, isn't there also a story, shouldn't they call it Trump Toilet? 
Okay. <laughs> you know, anything that, anything that has to do with hemp and building, the building industry, I love. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen. Uh, we, the concrete industry is so massive and huge. I was in Las Vegas when they had their convention, and I could not believe how big that convention is. So we need we need hemp to be used in in uh, building materials. It is a uh, fire retardant. It takes CO2 out of the air. It's uh, such a wonderful thing. But we've reached the end of the show. It was a really good show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico.